Add three more names this week to the roster of Republicans who are running for president. Former Vice President Mike Pence, New Jersey's Chris Christie, and Doug Burgum of North Dakota. Pence filed his paperwork today. The lay of the land for the GOP presidential hopefuls coming up on this Monday, June 5th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, authorities in India are trying to determine what caused the train crash Friday that killed more than 270 people. India's railway minister has hinted that a signal failure is the likely cause that led to this disaster, but he did not rule out a human error. Meanwhile, families are still looking for loved ones who are missing. The woman who has become the first golfer in 72 years to win on the LPGA Tour in her pro debut, also lessons from the world's longest scientific study on happiness. It's 401. News headlines are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Climate warming greenhouse gases in our planet's atmosphere are still climbing to levels Earth has not experienced in millions of years. NPR's Nathan Rott takes a closer look at what's been uncovered so far by scientists from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, as well as Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. The month of May before plant growth really takes off in the northern hemisphere is typically when climate warming carbon dioxide emissions peak in the Earth's atmosphere. It's a month when scientists and federal agencies like the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration take stock to see where the world is at in cutting emissions. A new report from NOAA says this May saw the fourth largest increase in year-to-year measurements to date. Carbon dioxide levels are now 50 percent higher than they were at the start of the Industrial Revolution. Scientists say cutting the use of fossil fuels and transitioning to renewable energy sources like wind and solar is the quickest way to slow the trend. Nathan Rott, NPR News. About 250 miles above Earth, the International Space Station is waiting for another supply delivery. Brendan Byrne of member station WMFE in Orlando reports a cargo ship took off from Florida's Kennedy Space Center to meet up with the seven crew members aboard the orbiting outpost. SpaceX launched more than 7,000 pounds of cargo to the station atop its Falcon 9 rocket. The capsule is packed with science experiments and supplies for the crew currently on board. It also includes new solar panels for the station, which will increase the orbiting lab's power capacity. WMFE's Brendan Byrne reporting. On the battlegrounds between Ukraine and Russia, troops backed by Kiev are waging a guerrilla-style campaign against their rivals across the border. NPR's Greg Meyer reports rebel fighters appear to have caught Russia by surprise. The rebel fighters are conducting operations in several small towns and villages in the southern Russian region of Belgorod. Over the past several days, they've taken a number of prisoners and exposed Russian vulnerabilities along its border with Ukraine. Ukraine supports the fighters, who are Russians opposed to the rule of Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Many analysts see these skirmishes as part of a larger effort to attack Russian troops on multiple fronts. Separately, Russia claimed it beat back a Ukrainian offensive in the eastern Donbass region, but Ukraine dismissed the Russian reports as untrue. Greg Myrie, NPR News. Kiev. Well, the president of Ukraine delivered a nightly video address in which he says his government has received news it's been waiting for for troops who've been fighting in and around the eastern city of Bakhmut. But Volodymyr Zelensky reportedly offered no further details. The Russian military claims it foiled a major offensive against its forces in eastern Ukraine. The Dow is down 11 points at the close. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts took in $2.7 billion in tax revenue last month. That's $169 million more than expected and about 10 percent more than in May of last year. However, the state reported today that tax collections for the first 11 months of the fiscal year are about 5 percent less than the same period last year. The Department of Public Health's rapid response team is at the Veterans Home in Chelsea to help the staff care for patients during a new COVID outbreak. Veterans Services Secretary John Santiago says 15 residents and nine staff members have tested positive since the first case was reported last Wednesday. 31 people at the Chelsea Veterans Home during the first uh, uh, died at the Chelsea Veterans Home during the first years of the pandemic. And New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu will not be running for president in 2024. He ended months of speculation with his announcement today on CNN. The Republican and frequent critic of former President Trump says that he will support whoever gets the party's nomination. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. A mainly gray afternoon. Some showers around. Should be cloudy overnight tonight, falling a few degrees to the low 50s. Tomorrow, hazy sunshine with some smoke from eastern Canada blowing in during the afternoon. Tomorrow could reach about the mid-70s. And then on Wednesday, pulling back to the mid-60s with lots of clouds around again and the chance of showers. 62 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. From news headlines to deeper dives into issues of real consequence, from Morning Edition to All Things Considered, from stories online at WBUR.org to conversations on stage at City Space, everything you get from WBUR depends on a solid foundation of listener support. Help us get to our June fundraiser goal to keep our journalism strong. Here's how to help. You can help right now by being one of, we hope, 700 new listeners who calls in and make a pledge right now at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And a particularly big reason to give right now, by the way, I'm Lisa Mullins, and here to tell you about that reason is Robin Young. Hello. Uh, What is the reason? We have, what, a dollar-for-dollar match? Yep. Explain. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, the way it works is I just gr- walked in. A group of generous listeners gave their monthly contributions to match yours because we can all do more for WBUR when we join together. So here's the way it works you give $10 a month, and that match makes it $15 a month. Uh, if this is a 50, no, it's a, I think it's a dollar for dollar match. So we'll do math. the math again $10 a month, and it becomes $20 a month. <laughs> Dollar for dollar, right. $15 a month becomes $30 a month and so on. And if you can make a pledge right now, if you have never, in fact, given to WBUR, we hope you'll take this chance to become a monthly subscriber because whatever you give, if you give on a monthly basis, it will be matched dollar for dollar for a full year. Okay. So 1-800-909-9287. Those are all great reasons to do it. But I'm also thinking of the breadth of what you hear. I just raced down from, we sometimes tape... uh, 
pieces, as you know, Lisa, as listeners know, with people that we have to wrangle. And I just finished my interview with my dear friends, the Jonas Brothers, Nick, <laughs> Joe, Did you Kevin. Really? Yes. Seriously? Yes. And so what that'll happened? be airing soon. And I'm holding in my hand the book that I'm reading uh, for an interview I'm going to be doing in the next couple of days with Frances Hogan, who's the Facebook whistleblower, you know, who brave, yes. bravely stood up and wow. did that. She, Her memoir is just terrific. And putting together a story on the January 6th defendants who are raising money off of their charges and in some cases asking for people to help with their defense when they had free public defenders. So some of that money being clawed back. What a range of things I get to do and to bring to you and you get to hear on the air. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org to help bring that to you. And it sounds like we have two things going on. We're trying to get a certain number of listeners... 700. 700. New listeners. New. Yes. And of what course, qualifies we, as new? we're hoping somebody who hasn't given before. Oh, okay. And, and we're hoping they'll become monthly subscribers as right. well. By the way, for anybody, even if you've been listening for 30 years, 35 years, we would please love to hear from you. Yes. I that, you're not excluded. Yeah, that's right. But so we're looking for people who haven't given before. Try it. It's so easy. It'll make you feel better. That little piece of guilt you're walking around with that you haven't contributed. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. But also, you're, 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 I think we're saying your money's doubled if it's a That's one-on-one right. on one match. Yep. So every dollar you pledge will be matched by uh, our longtime contributors. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. This is a perfect time for you to call or make your pledge online. Again, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. There's a lot of Boston flowing through WBUR. The programming, you know, local personalities, everything's very grounded here in Boston, it seems. I think we're incredibly lucky to be in a city that has such a rich public radio program. And I think WBUR specifically does a great job of connecting people not just to national news and international news, but local. It makes me want to support WBUR. Support your home for public radio. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And remember, your contribution turns into something a lot larger because we converted into journalism that informs the community and individual stories such as those that Robin Young was just talking about that really help bring alive what you listen to on WBUR. It could be hard news stories. It could be feature stories such as that interview she did with the Jonas Brothers, which <laughs> when we get off the air, I'll be asking her more about. Oh, it was deep. So keep, <laughs> keep in mind the impact that you have when you make a contribution right now, and especially because your contribution will be doubled dollar for dollar. So if you can give... a month, which is, I think, what a lot of people give for a monthly basis. It becomes $32 a month. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS.
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We are learning more about the lead up to and the aftermath of the deadliest train accident in India in more than two decades. We'll hear directly from survivors. Also, what India's leaders are saying about the crash in just a moment. First, it's a big week in the Republican presidential primary. Three more candidates are expected to jump into the race, and the candidates already running are on the campaign trail, often focusing on the culture wars. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro is following the field. Hi, Domenico. Hey, Ari. Okay, let's start with former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who had a town hall on CNN yesterday. How'd she do? You know, certainly more cogent than the town hall that uh, former President Trump did on the network. And that's reflective of their personalities. It's the contrast Haley really wants to draw. You know, she had a clearer position on Ukraine than Trump had. And, you know, she's comfortable on foreign policy, which makes sense. She was Trump's UN ambassador. On domestic topics, though, it was a bit rockier. You know, she was vague on abortion policy, was lacking some real context when talking about trans transgender youth. For example, she had this to say about girls' sports, transgender participation, and mental health. How are we supposed to get our girls used to the fact that biological boys are in their locker rooms? And then we wonder why a third of our teenage girls seriously contemplated suicide last year? You know, that's a real stretch. I mean, a combination of complex factors can place young people at high risk for suicide and depression, including substance use disorder, poor academic performance, other severe consequences. You know, Haley really misses a key point here. The CDC found in 2021 that a third of teenage girls had contemplated suicide the year before, but that same report said the risk was far higher among female LGBTQ plus students. Hmm. The culture wars have been central to this campaign, especially when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former President Donald Trump are out giving their campaign speeches. Both have overshadowed Haley up to this point. How do they differ in their messaging on the culture wars? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, DeSantis has made taking on progressive culture what he calls woke, a hallmark of his time as governor of Florida. Trump says that he's not a fan of using the phrase woke because he doesn't think people really understand what it means. That triggered this response from DeSantis, who spoke with a reporter from NBC on the sidelines of a campaign event in a gymnasium. It's about putting merit and achievement behind identity politics, and it's basically a war on the truth. And as that has infected institutions, it has corrupted a lot of institutions. So you've got to be willing to fight the woke. We've done it in Florida, and we proudly uh, consider ourselves the state where woke goes to die. So you can hear him say that being woke essentially makes someone's identity more important than whether they're good at something in the eyes of liberals. Uh, and, you know, he calls it a war on truth. DeSantis has taken on corporations like Disney when it comes to gender identity issues, really press schools to steer clear of teaching about gender or racial discrimination. And we're expecting other candidates to enter the race this week and learned about one who won't. Give us a snapshot. Yeah, you know, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who some people were looking at as potentially running, says he's not going to run, which really opens up a key early primary state. Um, you know, but it's not like, you know, uh, when we look here at some of these other candidates, Chris Christie likely to get in on Tuesday, former Vice President Mike Pence to get in on Wednesday. Um, and I think that that's a major piece of what we're looking at when it comes to, you know, the number of candidates who are going to be in this race, which is ever expanding. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Desperate families are looking for their loved ones in the Indian state of Odisha. 
Many people are still missing after a horrific train accident killed more than 270 and injured more than 1,100 people on Friday. There's a crunch at the morgues, scores of bodies still unclaimed. Authorities say a signal fault was the likely cause of the accident. With Sandeep Sahu in Odisha, Shalu Yadev sent this report. An incoming call from a loved one trying to reach out to one of the victims. But it remains unanswered as the victim's body lay lifeless. Many bodies are still unclaimed and unaccounted for at the school in Odisha's Balasore city, which was turned into a morgue because of its proximity to the accident site. The dead bodies were first brought here on Friday and kept for identification by families. The hall in the school has blood all over the floor and walls, and a stench has started to overpower the surroundings as bodies start to decay in the heat. Outside the school, a woman broke down as she heard that her son's body might be here. My son did not get to see much of the world. My child, he was trying so hard to find a job, she says. The disaster that killed her son on Friday was the worst train accident India has seen in nearly two decades. It shattered the dreams of hundreds of families across the country. With a faint chance of finding survivors anymore after the authorities declared completion of their rescue work, some families are now turning to mortuaries. Mukul Singh is looking for his 22-year-old nephew and neighbor. I have been looking for them since Friday night, but I haven't had any luck. I am going everywhere and anywhere people are pointing me to go. I couldn't find them even at the hospitals. I am now looking through the dead bodies to see if they are here. While the morgues are teeming with desperate family members looking for the remains of their loved ones, the hospitals are overwhelmed with hundreds of injured. Debiki Patra is still in shock as she recounts the moment when the tragedy struck. I boarded the train along with my husband and two sons at around 6.30 p.m. The train was packed with people. 15, 20 minutes later, we felt a huge thud and we were thrown off the carriage. My elder son pulled my husband and my younger son out of the wreckage. I broke my arm and they are now being treated in a different hospital. A preliminary investigation indicates that the accident was the result of a signal failure. Prime Minister Narendra Modi was visibly disturbed when he visited the hospital on Saturday. This is an extremely serious incident. The government is taking this very seriously. The culprit will not be spared. But even as he promised justice for the victims, serious questions are being raised about the safety standards of India's railways. A lifeline for the world's most populous country, ferrying about 25 million passengers every day. Yet with frequent accidents like this, it seems India's lifeline now needs a lifeline. With Sandeep Sahu in Odisha, for NPR News, I'm Shalu Yadav in Delhi. Thank you. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. BG Catering Concepts, planning weddings, corporate events, and other significant celebrations to feel special. BGCateringConcepts.com. And UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at UMassMed.edu. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, one of the authors of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Study on Happiness. It was a down day on Wall Street. The Dow fell six-tenths of a percent. The S&P lost two-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq dipped one-tenth of a percent. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Local journalism has disappeared from communities across America. Research from Harvard shows the erosion of local journalism has contributed to the deterioration of civic engagement in affected communities. Boston is fortunate to have robust local journalism, but we can't take it for granted. Start a monthly contribution to WBUR to keep our local journalism strong. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. So this is the first day of our very short June fund drive, and we really want to get down to business. Thanks to everybody who's called so far and made a pledge. If you haven't yet, here's what we're doing. We are inviting you to start a monthly contribution if you haven't as yet. And if you've never given, especially, we are asking you right now to be one of 700 people. That's our goal, 700 people to start up a monthly subscription to WBUR, a monthly contribution to the station uh, right now. And especially right now, because as Robin Young is about to tell you, this is a particularly good time because we've got a match on the table. It's 421. Yes. And it's that's a really a good, good time. time. <laughs> and the match is dollar for dollar. I I mean, it's just, it's, you, you can't lose. Everything you pledge was, is going to be matched by uh, other listeners from our wonderful Moreau Society, which, by the way, you can join when you call. You can ask about that. But the point is, you know, we really need to hear from you because you know, you know, we're in the same boat everybody else is in, right, Lisa? I mean, we know this is a tough economy for people, so if you absolutely can't do anything, we understand that. But because of that, we don't have, you know, most of our funding comes from listeners, but we have some from, you know, businesses and, and, and others, and they're suffering as well. So we really need to hear from you. And here's our, our fearless leader, our CEO, Margaret Lowe, with more on that. We have tens of thousands of supportive listeners, members, people who tell us that we're their lifeline, that even on the hardest news days, we remind them of their humanity. But the truth is, it's gotten harder and harder to find new members, and that scares us. I mean, it definitely keeps me up at night. Stations across the country are experiencing the same decline in the number of donors at a time when we know trustworthy information is so crucial to our collective well-being. So... My hope is that our listeners can help us buck this trend. We know that many of you listening spend more time with WBUR than you do with some of the people you love most. 
We also know that there are so many good causes to support, but if we matter in your life at all, if you can't imagine a day or a week without WBUR and NPR, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you, especially right now, because there is a dollar-for-dollar match on the table. So if you call right now, if you go online at WBUR.org and make a monthly contribution, your monthly contribution will be matched dollar-for-dollar for one year, thanks to some members of our Murray Society. Oh. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown, season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive nature.org slash solutions. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. If you could change one thing about your life in order to become a happier person, what do you think would make the biggest difference? Money? Job? Relationships? Health? Something else? Well, Dr. Robert Waldinger is the director of the world's longest-running scientific study of happiness, and his research offers a real answer to this question, backed up by data. He's co-author of a book called The Good Life. Welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. So this research, the Harvard Study of Adult Development, has been going on since 1938, and needless to say, you've not been the director of the study that entire time. That's right. Um, Before we answer the question, what change will most improve a person's happiness, tell us about the research that gives you confidence in answering this question. What's the study actually doing? Well, the study started out as a study of what makes people thrive. And it was very unusual to do that. We've spent so much time studying what goes wrong in life. And so this was a study of how people take good paths as they go through life. And it followed people for literally generations. You're now tracking the grandchildren or great-great-grand... I mean, what? how long is it? Well, we're seriously into the children, but we talked with their grandparents and we talked, of course, with their parents um, and now the children, most of whom are baby boomers. Hmm. So you're looking at what makes people thrive. When we use the word happiness, what are we actually talking about? Because there's a difference between like the spike of a sugar rush high and sort of the contentment of sitting on a rocking chair on, on a porch in your old age. Exactly. And it's both. You know, we do like that sugar rush high that I'm having fun right now at this party kind of high. And then there's the happiness that comes from feeling like I'm having a good life, a decent life, a meaningful life. And we all want some of both. But some of us really prioritize one kind over the other kind. Well, life is obviously very complicated. And your research goes into great detail across a wide range of variables. And given all of that, I was really surprised at how uncomplicated the answer to this central question is. So let's reveal. If people could change one thing in their lives to be happier, what should they choose according to the data? They should invest in their relationships with other people. We found that the strongest predictors of who not just stayed happy, but who was healthy as they went through life, the strongest predictors were the warmth and the quality of their relationships with other people. 
does it matter whether we're talking about friends, spouses, uh, coworkers, other kinds of relationships? It doesn't matter. We get benefits from all of those kinds of relationships, including the person who makes our coffee for us in the morning, including the person who delivers our mail. We get little hits of well-being in all these different kinds of relationships. Can you explain why? What we think is that relationships are stress regulators, that chronic stress, as we know, is a big problem, that it breaks down our coronary arteries and it breaks down our joints. It has numerous health hazards. And what we find is that good relationships are stress relievers. You know, if you think about it, if I have something upsetting happen during the day and I'm ruminating about it, my body revs up. And if I have somebody who's a good listener that I can go home to or call on the phone, I can literally feel my body come down, go back to baseline if I can talk to somebody about it. And we think that that's how relationships relieve stress and keep us healthy. Are introverts just out of luck? Like, does it matter quantity versus quality of friendships? Is one or two really close friendships as valuable as dozens of friendships that might not be quite as deep? It all depends on what you need. So we're all somewhere on a spectrum from being shy to being extroverted. And neither is a problem. Being really shy is not a problem. Those people just need fewer other people in their lives than those party animals. And so it's really up to each of us to kind of check in with ourselves and see what works for me, what's energizing but not exhausting or frightening. You know, what number of people, what kinds of contacts. One of the things that surprised me about the book, one of the takeaways that I was left with was that as we think about what we prioritize in our lives, we should actually consciously make space for our connections with others in a way that is not just like a break or a treat or a reward, but in the same way that we might prioritize, I don't know, exercise or whatever else we might think will help us live longer, healthier lives. Actually, spending time with our friends is a good thing to do, not just something that we can give ourselves as a reward for all of the other virtuous things that we might have carved out space for. Exactly. And we often imagine that, well, our good friends are going to stay our friends forever and no need to do anything to keep those relationships up. But many good relationships will just wither away from neglect. So we talk about what we call social fitness in the book, which is really tending to our relationships just like we take care of our physical health, just like we take care of physical fitness. Is there a point in life when it becomes too late to change course? Like how fixed are our paths? You know, we've tracked these lives for eight decades. And the wonderful thing about following these life stories is we learn it's never too late. There were people who thought they were never going to have good relationships and then found a whole collection of good close friends in their 60s or 70s. There were people who found romance for the first time in their 80s. And so the message that we get from studying these thousands of lives is that it is never too late. Right now, Americans generally report feeling lonelier and more isolated than people in their parents' or grandparents' generations. So give us an example or two of concrete, specific things that anybody could do tomorrow to help 
reroute their lives down the path that your research shows will lead to greater happiness, health, and longevity? Well, one thing would be to right now think of somebody you miss or like, would like to see more of and just send them a text, send them an email, call them on the phone. But the other thing you can do if you feel like you are not very connected with others is to think about the things you love to do or the things you care about and find ways to do those things alongside other people. Because what we know is that when we do that, when we're engaged in activities that we care about with other people who care about the same things, we start out with something in common. And from there, it's very natural to strike up conversations and with some of those people, make deeper relationships. Dr. Robert Waldinger is a psychiatry professor at Harvard Medical School. And with Mark Schultz, he's author of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This was a pleasure. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, ICABoston.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House is warning that someone may get hurt by China's military aggressiveness in the Taiwan Strait and South China Sea. This after a Chinese warship crossed in front of a U.S. destroyer yesterday in international waters. White House Security Council spokesman John Kirby told reporters today that if Beijing was trying to send a message that the U.S. was not welcome in the area, it's not going to happen. We're going to keep standing up for those rules of the road. We're going to keep standing up for that international law. And as I said earlier, we're going to keep flying. We're going to keep sailing. We're going to keep operating where international law allows us to. It's an important concept, freedom of navigation, whether it's in the air or on the sea. Kirby says air and maritime intercepts happen all the time, but the difference is it's done professionally. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and other Canadian officials held a briefing today on the more than 400 wildfires burning across the country. As Emma Jacobs tells us, the severe and early wildfire season is expected to worsen in the coming months. The area burned across Canada so far is about 10 times the average over the past decade. Tens of thousands of people have been forced to leave their homes. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We stand with the communities who've been evacuated and with people from coast to coast to coast who are enduring this painful heartbreaking time. Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson said an already devastating wildfire season could get even worse this summer and that this could become Canada's most destructive wildfire season ever. The federal government has deployed hundreds of members of the military to support Canadian firefighters and those on loan from the United States, Australia, South Africa and France. For NPR News, I'm Emma Jacobs in Montreal. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street to start the week. The Dow lost 199 points. This is NPR. 
is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Parents at the Winter Hill Community School in Somerville are asking city leaders to build a new facility as soon as possible. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, a piece of concrete fell into a school stairwell last week, and that's left the building closed for the remainder of the school year. Mayor Katiana Ballantyne and staff acknowledged Monday that the Winter Hill building is beset with problems, but they're asking for time to study a range of next steps, from short-term repairs to all-new construction. Parent Uma Murgan has a third grader at the school. She's asking the mayor to act with urgency. Whether a piece of structural concrete falls or non-structural concrete falls, it still falls. Is that what she wants to wait for? to fund this new building. We need a new building and we needed it three years ago. Classes will resume for the Winter Hills 420 plus students on Thursday, most of them in borrowed space on Tufts University's campus. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. For the first time in more than two years, Massachusetts employers are pessimistic about business. Associated Industries of Massachusetts reported today that business confidence dropped below 50 percent among the 140 employers it surveyed. It has not been this low since December of 2020. Businesses say they're concerned about high inflation and higher interest rates. Boston City Hall Plaza will be again hosting a summer beer garden. Mayor Michelle Wu announced today the space will open this Wednesday and taps will be flowing each week during the summertime, Tuesday through Sunday. The beer garden will also feature live music, art classes, and even yoga classes. Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays are at Fenway Park for a late matinee today. It's a makeup game for Friday night's rainout. Brian Bayo is set to, or has started for the Sox. Shane McClanahan for the Rays in the third inning. Now there is no score. And the forecast, lots of gray today and overnight tonight should have clouds. Temperatures in the low 50s. Tomorrow, hazy sunshine could have some smoke around from eastern Canada blowing in the afternoon, especially reaching about the mid-70s tomorrow. 61 degrees now in Boston at 436. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. From Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Today we often hear about Bakhmut, Ukraine as a theater of war, but some remember it as a magnificent city full of beauty. That story in a moment. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken leaves this evening for Saudi Arabia with a lot on his plate. The U.S. has been working with the Saudis to end the war in Yemen and mediate between two rival generals in Sudan. There is also concern about oil prices and a longer-term goal, getting Saudi Arabia to normalize ties with Israel. NPR's Michelle Kellman reports. The Trump administration started the normalization deals between Israel and some Arab states. Secretary Blinken says he's working to deepen and expand those, and a big test will be whether Saudi Arabia will sign such a deal with Israel. We have no illusions that this can be done quickly or easily, but we remain committed to working toward that outcome, including on the trip I'm about to take this week to Jeddah and Riyadh for engagements with our Saudi and Gulf counterparts. 
He was speaking today to the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. A more integrated, prosperous, stable region serves the interests of Israel. It serves the interests of our regional partners. It serves the United States. But some experts say Saudi Arabia is demanding too high a price by asking the U.S. for a civilian nuclear program and fewer restrictions on arms sales. Human rights activist Sara Lee Whitson says the Biden administration has already backed off its promises to recalibrate relations with Saudi Arabia, even after the Saudis prompted a spike in oil prices last year. This visit underlines what started to unfold early last year, which is a complete capitulation to Saudi Arabia for the questionable interests of securing cheap oil and securing normalization with Israel. She's with the nonprofit called Dawn, Democracy for the Arab World Now. It was founded by Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was killed inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in 2018. And we still don't know where his body is, by the way. Nearly five years on, we're not able to give him a proper burial. Secretary Blinken is expected to meet the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, as has President Biden, despite the fact that U.S. intelligence officials believe he was involved in the killing. Whitson says human rights have fallen off the U.S. agenda with Saudi Arabia. If the rest of the world doesn't believe what the United States says about the importance of democracy and a rules-based order and human rights, is because they see that the Biden administration doesn't believe those things anyway, because if they did, their policies in the Middle East would look very differently. State Department officials say Secretary Blinken always brings up human rights. Deputy Assistant Secretary Daniel Benaim says Blinken is going to Saudi Arabia with what he calls a forward-looking agenda. There's just a tremendous amount of work that we're trying to do. Yemen, Sudan, bilateral work, commercial work, educational work, close counterterrorism cooperation, defense and security, regional diplomacy. Blinken's trip comes just as Iran will reportedly reopen its embassy in Saudi Arabia, part of an agreement that China helped to broker. A U.S. spokesman says the U.S. wants to see direct diplomacy between Iran and Saudi Arabia and called an exchange of ambassadors a, quote, unsurprising step. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. To most of the world, the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut is a scorched earth killing field, the longest and bloodiest battle of Russia's war on Ukraine. But for one young rescue worker, Bakhmut is home. NPR's Joanna Kakis has caught up with him near the front line in eastern Ukraine. For the last year, Edvard Skorik has had a familiar routine. He gets up early, puts on a helmet and flak jacket, and jumps into a van with a sign that reads evacuations. Then he drives toward the front line. I've adapted to live only in the moment. I don't think very far ahead. I see the situation here and now. I see that help is needed now. Skorik is 31 and cautious, especially when he's talking about feelings. He's thin but athletic, like a long-distance runner. We follow his van on a half-paved road to the town of Toretsk. It's about 22 miles south of Bakhmut. These days, it sounds like this. Skorik and a couple of other volunteers are near a church that was recently bombed. They're here to evacuate a frail elderly couple. The evacuation started a year ago. Then the front line kept coming closer to us. So far, our team has evacuated something like 30,000 people, most of them from Bakhmut. He pauses. Bakhmut, his hometown, a hometown that now lives mostly in his memory. 
My life was in that city. I had so many friends. My most vivid memories were my teenage years. I got a motorbicycle when I was 13, and I remember riding around the streets of Bakhmut and all the villages around it. Early in the morning, he would head to the abandoned alabaster mines in the countryside, then back to his city, passing Bakhmut's famous sparkling wine factory, then stopping at his favorite hangout spot, the river embankment. What a magnificent place. There was this whole alley of roses. There were also cafes, beautiful trails and beautiful trees. It was so atmospheric and I can't really describe its beauty in words. You had to be there, he says, and he looks sad. Edvard Skorik's Bakhmut was alive. His blue-collar neighborhood of high-rise apartments where the local tough guys taught him to kickbox. The school where he learned about Bakhmut's mining riches. And this one place that every single local knew, a nightclub called the Hutorok. He shows me a video. Outside, it looked like a big lock cabin. Inside, it was decorated like an old-fashioned Ukrainian restaurant with embroidery and everything. Skorik and his family left Bakhmut last May, four months after Russia's full-scale invasion. A few weeks later, he heard that a Russian missile killed a classmate there. That prompted Skorik to offer his neighbors a chance to evacuate. He recorded those encounters on his phone. In one video, a teenager in a white coat says her family won't leave because they tell her war is everywhere in Ukraine. In another, Skorik hands out several loaves of bread to a woman riding a bike who also refuses to leave. In the last video taken late last year, a distraught grandmother agrees to leave but asks, how can I leave my home? Then I drove past my house, although it was not on my way. It wasn't damaged yet. It was like a farewell moment. It was the last time I stood on my street in my own neighborhood while it was still intact. He hasn't been able to return since January, though he's heard a few hundred people remain there. But he has seen videos and photos showing his school, his neighborhood, his favorite club, his beloved Alley of Roses, all destroyed, all burned to the ground. I've had to put my memories on pause. I cannot yet feel grief or worry, no matter how cold this may sound. Because Bakhmut, he says, was his whole life. Grieving its loss feels too enormous, and he has too much to do right now. Like help the elderly couple in Toretsk. The couple is Ludmila and Victor, who have lived here for 50 years. Victor is on a stretcher, and Ludmila needs a walker. She wears her best jacket and lipstick to honor the home she will never see again. Skorik takes her hand. Don't worry, my dear, he says. Take my hand, and everything will be okay. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Toretsk, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local journalism is the backbone of vibrant, engaged local communities. When local journalism disappears, civic engagement goes with it. WBUR's journalism is strong, but we don't take it for granted, and we hope you won't either. Our future is not guaranteed. We need your monthly contribution to keep our journalism and our local communities strong. Give today at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. 
And we're going to be really direct. Please do it right now because this is a very short June fund drive. Our fundraising goal is this, for 700 listeners to become monthly contributors to WBUR. We're especially looking for new listeners, people who have not given before. We would love all of you to please up your pledge or to make a pledge for the first time. Uh, and if you need reasons, we've got plenty of reasons. We, as, as you heard Rupa say there, journalism continues to be hard hit by economic conditions, by political attacks, and it is happening all over the place. We need to make sure that we are strong and fortified and we will stay independent with your help, with your contribution right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins. And Robin Young is with me right now. Hello and there. Hi. And we've got a great match on the table. Oh, we do. A, a dollar for dollar. So everything that you pledge, every single dollar will get matched by somebody else so your money goes that much further. We're looking for 700 of you who have not done this before. Come on in. It is painless. It takes just a second. You go to uh, WBUR.org, where, by the way, there's so much news. I'm always shocked. I, I just went to, uh, to WBUR.org, and I see that Lynn is going to have a ferry that's going to go down to Boston. Isn't oh. that going to be cool? And that's especially important because the Sumner Tunnel is going to close for two months in about a month. I forgot. And over on if you go to hearnow.org, you also see our stories from today, including our panel uh, at City Space on abuse in restaurants after those explosive allegations. You hosted the panel. Yes, and we had some of it on today. And people are, you know, the James Beard Awards kick off today. So there's just so much percolating there. You can do it online and see all the news that, you know, you want to catch up on. You can just call 1-800-909-9287. It is so easy. Not, did I give it? Yeah. one eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven. And the match, too. And it's so easy, and your money goes so much further. And here is uh, Magna Chakrabarty with other reasons. I love climbing the mountains of New England, especially partial to the New Hampshire ones. So, you know, when, when you get to the top of Mount Monadnock or any New England mountain, and you see the, the cairns there, the little pile of rocks that people have added every time someone summits, and you put your your rock on the cairn. It always reminds me of my absolute favorite Disney movie of all time, technically Pixar, but Disney movie, Moana. Really love that film. And there's a scene in Moana where she goes to the top of the mountain on her island with her father. And there's a cairn there at the top of the island and it's every every chief uh, that her people have ever had. And he says, when you, he says to Moana, when you lay your stone on top of this island, you raise us all higher. And to me, in a sense, that's what great journalism does, and that's what contributions to great journalism do. Your contribution is like that stone added to the edifice of public service journalism. And when you add that stone, it lifts us all higher. It makes our journalism better. And so that's why I think it matters. It matters to give um, because you make a, it makes a big difference to what we can do uh, and how we can serve people, um, and it lifts us all, our entire community. That, and, right, that right there is poetry. Yeah, that, that is poetry. And, right and, and it is so true as well because when you make a contribution to WBUR, you are contributing to a better, more edified, uh, and even more entertained community. And 
what better thing could you ask for? You're making you... Moana happy, You're... <laughs> I think. And also said. remember that listeners make up the largest share. You make up the largest share of our operating budget, and that is not nothing. I mean, we are so grateful for those of you who've pledged your support in the past to WBUR and to those who have already today on this, the first day of our June Fund Drive. We're hoping you will do it again right now because uh, just to, to set the table again, 700 listeners, 700 people were looking for you to become new monthly contributors to WBUR. The monthly contribution goes a long way, especially right now, because we have a match on the table dollar for dollar. If you can give $15 a month, it becomes $30 a month. If you can give 30 it becomes 60 and so on. The whole year. The whole for, year. For an entire year, thanks to some members of our Morris Society. Yeah. So please make the call now. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Put your stone on the cairn. Now I know how to pronounce that word, too. <laughs> and and build and build and watch it grow. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And thank you. Thank you. WBUR supporters include BU School of Social Work, top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. BU.edu slash SSW. The Army is escalating one of its toughest and longest-running battles, the war against mold. A new plan of attack makes mold prevention a basic part of being a soldier. Jay Price of member station WUNC reports from Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Sergeant Major David Cutshaw walks into a barracks room for a routine inspection. He immediately looks up at the ceiling. That has the start. See what I'm talking about? Yes, sir, Major. Cutshaw points at tiny black dots, together enough to maybe cover a dime, dotting a vent cover just inside the door. Mold. The residents, Private's second-class Aubrey Smith and Andy Ziegler, listen attentively. Since you're new to this, right, new to the Army, in hot, humid areas, right, mold and barracks tends to be a problem. The Army is using these routine room checks as a teaching opportunity about mold, which can cause health issues that vary greatly depending on the type of exposure and how susceptible someone is. The push started last year after serious mold issues forced more than a thousand Bragg soldiers to relocate from a cluster of barracks. A dozen of the buildings will be torn down. That and mold problems on other bases triggered an army-wide inspection of barracks, family housing, and offices. Mold was found and cleaned up in more than 2,000 places. Now the army is bringing its nearly half a million soldiers into the fight. And the primary effort there is informing and educate them in terms of how to report. Lieutenant General Omar J. Jones leads Army Installation Management Command, which is responsible for maintaining thousands of buildings. So if they see mold or they have a concern, how do they tell someone, who do they tell to make sure that we can get the right experts there to help them? Jones says the Army-wide plan also includes standards for defining and cleaning up mold, training for remediation and inspection teams on each base, tracking mold issues with sophisticated software to identify trends, and giving higher priority to mold reports. Our standard, if someone has put in a, a work order request, someone has put in a report of mold, we will have a certified expert responding to them in less than 24 hours. The problem the Army faces is common. One study estimated 47% of U.S. homes had substantial dampness or mold issues. Another found 100% had mold on some surfaces. Mold is ubiquitous. 
Philip Ferry of the University of Central Florida is an expert on mold issues and structures. It's everywhere all the time. There's mold spores everywhere. And he says the right amount of moisture on a surface can be the catalyst. How the spores get that moisture is what humans have to figure out and prevent. And it's often complicated. The cause of moisture that triggers, say, mold inside walls isn't always obvious. And whether a particular mold problem is serious is a big question. Take mold in bathrooms, a common issue in the barracks, and, Ferry says, in every home with a tile shower. Every single one because there's enough moisture there to support the growth of mold. So is that a problem or not? It's not really a problem for me because, I mean, a little bit of Clorox will fix it. For mold issues too big for the soldiers to handle themselves, work crews are brought in. The Army inspections found by far the most problems were on bases in the humid southeast, like Bragg. Base officials there say they're watching to see if the effects of educating the young soldiers are reflected in data on work orders. Meanwhile... If the caulk is gone, put a work order in, and they'll come out and they'll redo the caulk. That educating continues, one barracks room at a time. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. I believe real journalism is essential to our daily life and our collective future. I believe public radio is one of the last great hopes for journalism in our country. If you believe these things too, then I'm asking you to start a monthly contribution to WBUR. It doesn't have to be a lot of money, maybe just $10 to $15 a month. It'll go a long way to protect one of life's essentials. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And we'll hope you do that right now. $10 to $15 a month right now becomes... $20 to $30 a month because of some very generous members of the Murrow Society who are doubling your pledge right now, just this hour. So, again, this is the first day of our fund drive. We are hoping that you will take advantage of this generous offer on the table right now. It's a short fundraiser. We are looking for 700 listeners to become new monthly contributors to WBUR, and that's why we say if you can give $15 a month right now, it becomes 30 30 becomes 60 and this goes on for one full year. Year. So take advantage of this right now. Make your pledge on this, the first afternoon of a short June fundraiser, and that will be probably one of the best things that we think you could do anyway on a Monday. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number, or go to WBUR.org. What else have you got to do? 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. It is so easy when it's just a monthly contribution and it happens automatically. You don't have to think about it, and you don't have to be worried that you're not doing your part. You are. It's being done automatically for you. And in this case, it's being doubled. That is just fantastic. And how how are we doing on this search for 700 people who haven't contributed? I thought everybody had contributed and it would be difficult to find. We'll find out how we're doing. (laughs) Maybe we're down to 695. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, But we really would like to have you 
make that first time commitment to do that. It's going to feel so good. And that's, you know, one of the problems that public radio has. We have a lot of people out there listening, a ton of people listening. And maybe many of you are also saying, yes, what Robin says, you should call. What Lisa says, do what she says and realize you haven't done it. (laughs) How do I know that? I've been there. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Call for reporters like our own Deb Becker. One of the stories that I followed for years was the commutation petition of William Allen. He was trying to get his life in prison sentence commuted, and he knew that the odds were against him. There hadn't been a commutation of a first-degree murder sentence in Massachusetts in a quarter century. Allen was incarcerated for 28 years, but dozens and dozens of people supported his petition and came forward. And when he was eventually released last year, Allen credited the way his supporters portrayed him. This is a little bit of what he said. They proofread my story, and they told my story. And they told my story so good that everybody actually can visualize the story as it's being read. And they did a, they did a, a wonderful job, and I thank God for that. That was William Allen, shortly after he was released from prison and had his life in prison sentence commuted. And he thanked us here at WBUR for our reporting. He said, quote, you help the world see me as a human when most people think of prisoners as animals. And just recently, I received an email that said, today is the one year anniversary of William's freedom. And the writer said personal stories like William's can really, quote, move the ball forward. And the email ended with, once again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for seeing the good in William and telling his story in such a compelling way. And I think that personal stories inform decisions and lead to change. It's really the stories about the people. And we here at WBUR are grateful to the people like William who share their stories with us. We're also grateful to everyone who considers our stories about these people behind the policies and the politics. WBUR will continue to bring you powerful stories of people so we can deeply understand the issues affecting all of us. So please make the phone call right now. What a great testament to what you get from WBUR. Make the phone call right now, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Capital One, with the Capital One Quicksilver card, Capital One is proud to support NPR Music and the Tiny Desk Contest. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. 
WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading to Saudi Arabia this week, and he says one goal is to promote normalization with Israel. Blinken spoke today to the pro-Israel lobby APAC, or the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. NPR's Michelle Kelman is more. Secretary Blinken says he wants to deepen and broaden what the Trump administration started, normalization deals between Israel and Arab states. One major goal is getting Saudi Arabia to sign one. We have no illusions that this can be done quickly or easily, but we remain committed to working toward that outcome, including uh, on the trip I'm about to take this week to Jeddah and Riyadh, for engagements with our Saudi and Gulf counterparts. He says Iran poses the biggest danger to Israel, and the Biden administration still believes diplomacy is the best way to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. Saudi Arabia and Iran recently agreed to restore diplomatic relations. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. What may be a costly bet by Saudi Arabia to up oil prices over the weekend, the OPEC member announced that as the world's biggest crude exporter, it would be cutting production by 10 percent or around a million barrels in July after other cartel members refused to go along. A group known as OPEC Plus One, the one being major producer Russia, accounts for close to half of the world's oil production. Oil prices opened higher this morning before giving back some of those gains. Officials have located the remains of three people in the rubble of a building that partially collapsed in Davenport, Iowa, a week ago. Zachary Orrin-Smith of Iowa Public Radio has more. A week of searching ended with a grim announcement. The bodies of Brandon Colvin Sr., Ryan Hitchcock, and Daniel Prien had been found. Davenport Mayor Mike Madsen says the city is now looking into what caused the collapse. The day before the building fell, the Davenport Fire Department received a 911 call at the building suggesting it wasn't safe. Madsen says they're investigating. There have been inquiries regarding the 911 call that was placed on Saturday. want to ensure the public that we are looking into this. Right now, as I'm sure you can understand, our focus has been on the families of the victims. Police say there are no other remains thought to be in the wreckage. For NPR News, I'm Zachary Oren-Smith in Davenport, Iowa. Journalists at dozens of newspapers owned by media giant Gannett walked off the job today demanding an end to painful cost-cutting measures at the company and changes in leadership. The 24-hour strike at the nation's biggest newspaper chain coinciding with the company's annual shareholder meeting, during which the board was duly elected despite members of News Guild CWA calling on shareholders to withhold votes from CEO and board chair Mike Reed as an expression of no confidence in the company's leadership. Stocks lost ground to start the week, though a broad market briefly touched a new high. The Dow fell 199 points. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. On Beacon Hill, the state Senate could take up a much-anticipated tax relief package in the next two weeks. That word today from the head of the Senate Ways and Means Committee, Senator Michael Rodericks. Governor Maura Healey filed her proposal for tax relief, her bill, in the spring. Massachusetts House approved its version of the bill in April. The Dighton Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret government documents online has a new lawyer. A judge has appointed attorney Michael Backrack to represent 21-year-old Jack Teixeira, one of Teixeira's previous lawyers left the case last month. And federal regulators are asking vessels to slow down off the southeast tip of Nantucket for the next two weeks. Endangered right whales have been spotted in the area. Tomorrow, a congressional committee will hear testimony on stronger federal regulations to protect the North Atlantic right whales. 
in sports. Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays are playing the final game of their series now at Fenway Park. It's a makeup for Friday night's rainout. No score now in the bottom of the fourth inning. And in the forecast, clouds prevailing this evening and overnight tonight. Spotty showers, temperatures overnight in the low 50s. Tomorrow, partly sunny skies. Should be a little bit on the smoky side, especially in the afternoon from the fires that are burning in Nova Scotia. High winds tomorrow bringing those, uh, that smoke down here. Temperatures should be in the mid-70s and then back to the 60s and more clouds on Wednesday. 62 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown, Season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. I'm Deepa Fernandez. From news headlines to deeper dives into issues of real consequence. From Morning Edition to All Things Considered. From stories online at WBUR.org to conversations on stage at City Space. Everything you get from WBUR depends on a solid foundation of listener support. Help us get to our June fundraiser goal to keep our journalism strong. Here's how to help. It's pretty easy. Call 1-800-909-9287-1-800-909. That's 90.9-9287. That's WBUR. Or you can pledge online at WBUR.org. We are looking for 700 listeners who have not given to WBUR on a monthly basis before to become monthly contributors right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We're here just for a couple of minutes before we go to our story coming up on the hundreds of protesters who converged on City Hall in Atlanta today amid a vote on whether to fund massive police training center. Um, that's just one of many stories that you count on WBUR to bring you in an unbiased, informative, non-inflammatory way, and we think that's why a lot of you listen, because of what you hear on WBUR, the coverage you get. The number again, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you, Lisa Mullins, for you were like spelling things out, waiting for me to get back in here (laughs) (laughs) from something that took me out there. We are looking for those 700 listeners who have not done this before. We are looking behind the pillow cushions on 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 the couch. We're looking everywhere for you guys. Just make that call, 1-800-909-9287, and you'll see how easy it is. And this idea of becoming a monthly uh, uh, member, it's so great. It, it just takes care of business for you. It's the thing you want to do. You want to spread your contribution out over the year. It does that. And now more than ever, it's going to match it every month. This is a match. This dollar-for-dollar dollar match is a match, yes, from this June fundraiser. But if you become a monthly member, it will be every month for a year. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. What are the biggest threats to democracy? Well, misinformation, voter suppression, and how about the steep decline of local journalism? I'm Elsa Chang. WBUR and NPR believe that public media is the enduring future of local reporting. But we won't win the fight on our own. We need more member dollars to be your eyes and ears when important decisions are made, to bring more diverse voices into the conversation, and to be the ones to hold power to account. Become a member today at WBUR.org.
And what better time than to do it today on this, the first day of our short June fundraiser, because we have right now on the table a dollar-for-dollar match. Some generous members of the Murrow Society gave their money in order to match yours. So they're doing their part in hopes that you will take them up on the offer and do yours. We're especially looking for 700 listeners, people who have not contributed on a monthly basis to WBUR before, to call in and get your funds matched. And by the way, we're looking for any contribution from from those of you who are listening. And we hope that you will do your part because This is a tough time, as you have heard, for journalism. This is um, uh, a source that we know you count on pretty much every day. Think of what you would give in order to get WBUR back if we weren't here for you. Pledge whatever you can to WBUR. We don't want to break your budget, but we've got to tell you right now is an especially thrifty way to give to WBUR because when you become a monthly contributor, you will get your monthly uh, contribution matched dollar for dollar. $15 becomes $30, $30 becomes $60, etc. one 800 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. You know, we can't say that this is a a particularly important news cycle. I, I don't, there hasn't been one that hasn't been important in years, but this week in particular, people are announcing things left and right. I believe Governor Sununu announced today he is not running for president, and you have former Vice President Mike Pence expected to announce tomorrow, or Wednesday, that he is running. We follow all the news for you, but also the stories that are just, you know, off that kind of uh, a headline, the effects of Ozempic. This is the drug that uh, has been developed for type 2 diabetes patients, but it's also proving to curb addictions. I mean, we have that reporting for you. 1-800-909-9287-WBR.org to fill your life. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England, proudly recognizing the Lenny Zakum Fund. Founded by civil rights leader Lenny Zakum, this public, nonprofit, charitable organization supports nearly 400 local grassroots groups committed to advancing social, economic, and racial justice. The LennyZakumFund.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Atlanta today, protesters gathered at City Hall as the city council there considers funding a controversial police training facility. Earlier this year, state troopers killed a protester while clearing the construction site for the facility. Other protesters who call the project Cop City have been arrested and charged with domestic terrorism. Well, with us now is Raul Bali with member station WABE. He is inside Atlanta City Hall. Hey there, Raul. Hey, Mary Louise. Hey, what's the scene there? What can you see? So right now we're in the middle of hours of public comments in front of the city council. Hundreds of protesters have filled the council chambers along with this indoor courtyard. Uh, This indoor courtyard has a big screen and, and, you know, every time someone speaks against um, what they call Cop City, you hear cheers. You once in a while will hear a chant, Stop Cop City. That's what they've named the uh, train center. City offices have been closed. All the, you know, offices area. The only thing that's open is just the chambers. There's also a heavier than normal police presence for council meetings when I come down here. We expect this to last well into the night. More than 350 have already signed up, and we're hearing more may be allowed to sign up. 
Huh, so you're going to be there for a while. I, You know, we have been reporting on this training facility for a while. It has been controversial for months. Help me just understand exactly what, what it is meant to be. So it's meant to be a state-of-the-art law enforcement facility. That's what the supporters call it. It's 85 acres of forested land owned by the city of Atlanta. It's going to have like a vehicle driving course and a firing range. It's also meant to train firefighters and first responders with like burn buildings, for example. Total cost about $90 million. A third of it will come from the nonprofit police foundation. What the city council is voting on today is the rest of that money. Building the facility was was approved about two years ago, right around the time of, of a spike in crime and, and during COVID. Uh, but since there's been a lot of protests, they've been growing. As you mentioned, one protester was killed by state troopers uh, at the site. That is still under investigation. Others have been arrested, charged with domestic terrorism for allegedly throwing Molotov cocktails and damaging equipment on the site. So are there specific demands, specific concerns you're hearing about at the city council meeting today? Well, the general demand by opponents is don't build it, don't fund it. You know, the concerns, there's a range of concerns, and one of those is that this training center would be part of militarizing police. That's what Gary Spencer, senior counsel at the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund, said. The policing promoted by this facility will not make Atlanta safer. In fact, it will put our communities, particularly our black and brown communities, in significant danger. There are environmental concerns because this is an urban forested area inside of Atlanta, in the Atlanta area, just southwest of the city proper. Then there are people saying, you know what, this $90 million can be spent on something else. And for, by the way, those who support it, I should mention the supporters, they're saying that, you know what, law enforcement firefighters need up-to-date facilities. They're really in bad shape and that that's, this may actually save money by doing it this way. That is Raul Bally with WABE reporting from Atlanta City Hall. Thanks, Raul. Great to be on. This week, a 1970s-era turboprop plane is making a slow and steady 6,000-mile flight from the U.S. to Argentina. The plane has a dark past. It was used to dispose of political prisoners during Argentina's military dictatorship of the 1970s and 80s. Human rights activists and one tenacious survivor who spent years searching for the plane hope its return will help thousands of victims find closure. NPR's Kerry Kahn reports. Miriam Lewin was abducted by Argentine security forces in May 1977. Like thousands others, she was taken to the sprawling naval school grounds in Buenos Aires, where she was kept for a year. I was 19 years old. I was a student activist. I was a desaparecida, a missing person. Nobody knew where I was. Lewin says the torture was brutal and survival was tough, especially after learning detainees were being tossed alive from planes into the Atlantic. It was too hard to keep on living, surviving after you knew that your final destination was going to be being thrown into the ocean from a plane. Lewin survived, and after years in exile, she returned to Argentina becoming an award-winning investigative journalist. An Italian photographer asked her why she never used her skills to search for those infamous planes. But what for? I mean, what? they're just objects. It's useless. It took some convincing, but three decades after she walked out of the Navy school alive, she began the search. 
After years poring over military databases and consulting aviation experts, she found one of those bulky short-haul turboprop Skyvans in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The new owner even had the original flight logs. One flight, December 14, 1977, stuck out. The plane left Buenos Aires Airport, flew for several hours over the Atlantic, then came right back. Cecilia de Vicente's mom was on that flight. Ahí estuvo cuatro días, aproximadamente, y el quinto día estirada desde un vuelo de la muerte. She was held at the naval school, tortured and then thrown on that death flight, says 61-year-old de Vicente. Que a mí me robaron, a mí me robaron a mi mamá, pero también me robaron a la abuela de mis hijos, ¿no? They robbed me of a mother and a grandmother to my children, she says. Her mother's remains washed ashore and were later identified by anthropologists searching for the thousands disappeared during the dictatorship. Using those records, together with the flight logs found in Florida, prosecutors in 2017 were able to convict two pilots from that death flight. Con todas las pruebas armadas, ¿qué van a decir? No, estás mintiendo. With all this proof, they can't continue saying these horrible acts never happened, says De Vicente. Some politicians, including a leading candidate for this year's presidential elections, have been downplaying the crimes of the dictatorship. Not all objections to the plane returning to Argentina come from the right, however. 70-year-old Adriana Leva comes to hear the names of victims read by the mothers and grandmothers of the disappeared every Thursday in Buenos Aires. She believes her sister, disappeared in 1977, was thrown from a death flight, and she doesn't want the plane displayed at the former detention site, now a museum. She loathes when events are held there, too. But museum officials say most do favor the plane's return, anticipated by week's end. At a recent commemoration of the plane's discovery, Mabel Cariaga said its return is vital. Her mother was also killed on that December 14th death flight. She says the planes couldn't keep flying as if nothing ever happened. It must come back and stand as proof of the brutalities of the past, she says. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Buenos Aires. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. astreetframes.com. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on All Things Considered. Some Muslim women are using feminine pronouns to refer to Allah. We'll find out what started the movement. It was a down day on Wall Street. The Dow fell six-tenths of a percent. S&P lost two-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq dipped a tenth of a percent. In the forecast, look for cloudy skies through the evening and overnight tonight. Could have some spotty showers tonight. Overnight lows dipping to the 50s. And then tomorrow, partly sunny skies dimmed by some smoke coming from the fires burning in Nova Scotia. Windy and warmer tomorrow, up around the mid-70s. And then back to the clouds on Wednesday, highs about 66. There is a high surf advisory, by the way, in effect until 8 o'clock tonight. Waves could rise 5 to 8 feet, so not a good day for swimming or surfing. Also, some coastal roads may have some flooding. This is WBUR. It's 521. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. From news headlines to deeper dives into issues of real consequence... 
from Morning Edition to All Things Considered, from stories online at WBUR.org to conversations on stage at City Space, everything you get from WBUR depends on a solid foundation of listener support. Help us get to our June fundraiser goal to keep our journalism strong. Here's how to help. By calling this number 1-800-909-9287 or going online at WBUR.org because we are looking for a total of 700, well, I guess maybe more than 700 if you would please make the phone call or go online, 700 people who listen to become new monthly contributors to WBUR. So it's a monthly contribution that goes a long way toward our keeping our journalism strong for you and for the entire community throughout the year. It's money we know we can count on, and you know that it means you're counting on WBUR and supporting WBUR at the same time. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with the co-host of Here and Now, Robin Young. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. I thought you were going to say, I'm Lisa Mullins with my longtime friend. Yeah. <laughs> I could because we are um, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org and think of all the news that comes pouring out of your radio at this moment what's happening in Ukraine we will tell you I mean anything you're we're like Google or something anything you're thinking about we will have it for you but we need your help in doing that 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org and yes we're looking for those 700 I wonder how they chose 700. We're looking for those 700 people who are listeners, but you haven't maybe committed to being a monthly contributor. Try it. It's just fantastic. As one who is, I can say that. Uh, also, we're looking for you to do it right now because it's dollar for dollar for whatever you pledge. So that monthly... I think you meant you're a monthly contributor. Yeah. Yes. What I you're fantastic anyway, but I think you meant as one who is a monthly contributor. Oh, okay. Just to straighten it out. In all ways it applies, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And we're looking to see how many of you have done that to knock down that number. But boy, I mean, be one of them. It, it just really makes such a big difference. If And I didn't know this until I did it, but there it is. It's just you're giving every month, and maybe it's $15, maybe it's $30, and you've, you know, you feel like, great, I've done it, and I can listen to this station as much as I want. And today, that 15 becomes 30, that 30 becomes 60, because you've got some terrific Murrow Society people uh, putting their pledge towards yours. So 1-800-909-9287-WVUR.org. And just try to do it now. We really would appreciate it. Absolutely. It's day one of our fund drive, a short June fundraiser. So please take advantage of the matching pledge on the table right now. Become a monthly contributor. We would be so grateful. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice, easycater.com. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There's a quiet revolution happening among some Islamic scholars and feminists. They're using female or gender-neutral pronouns to refer to the divine, Allah. 
I don't need to think of Allah as a loving mother uh, or a protecting father. Sophia Rehman is a scholar of gender and Islam. So for me, Allah is just this perfect blend of everything that is on a plane that is much higher and transcends these sort of, you know, gender binaries and, you know, the, the stickiness of that. This shift raises questions about how Islam understands women, gender, and God. Hafsa Lodi wrote about this movement in The Revealer. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. Tell us about this quiet revolution. What's revolutionary about it? Yes, I guess what's revolutionary about it is just hearing the female pronouns or the feminine pronouns, she and her, when referring to Allah, God, who has traditionally in Islamic thought and in Islamic scholarship, always been referred to as he in, in the masculine pronoun in English. So to hear Allah being referred to as she at a time when Islamic feminism is gaining so much traction, it's really revolutionary. So God has traditionally been referred to using masculine pronouns, but in Islam, although I know it's a vast and diverse religion, is Allah generally understood to have a gender? No, definitely not. I mean, the Quran, the holy uh, text of Islam, implies time and again that Allah has no gender. Allah is beyond gender. Allah is no man, no woman. Allah has no spouse or children. But the Quran was revealed in Arabic, and linguistically, Allah is referred to as he, which is the masculine pronoun huwa in Arabic, throughout the Quran. You talked to a number of scholars and academics for your article. We heard from one in the intro. Um, here's another. Aisha Chaudhry is a gender and Islamic studies professor at the University of British Columbia. Using these different genders for God, I think helps me personally come up against the limitations of my imagination of God. And it helps maintain the mystery around God and help me understand that, like, I can't encompass all of God and that actually God is always beyond me. And so, Hasa Lodi, what other reasons did people give you for this exploration? Yes, yeah, so many. I mean, one of my friends, actually, after the article was published, she pointed out something that I hadn't, hadn't even thought about before, um, was that, you know, for some females, the pronoun he might be triggering if they've had negative experiences with abuse, with males in positions of authority. And so for them, she might be a, a better way, a way for them to connect better with the creator, with the divine. And I found that kind of beautiful in a way. One expert told you people still get into a tizzy about this. So yes. <laughs> tell us about the tizzy. What's the pushback? So yeah, there's a lot of pushback. You'd think it would be mainly from men, but it's from, from women as well. Um, the pushback is that the Quran is perceived to be an immutable text in Islam. You know, it was, it's never been changed and we can't change it. In the Quran, Allah is referred to as he, uh, huwa, the Arabic uh, pronoun for he. So we cannot go in and change that. Allah never self-identified using an English pronoun, so there's no wiggle room to call Allah she. That's what um, the pushback would say. I could imagine a, a hundred arguments in response to that, but is it really <laughs> about authenticity and devotion to the original text, or do you think it's about something more? Yeah, definitely. I think Muslim cultures particularly take uh, patriarchal forms historically. And so those in power don't want to see these gender hierarchies changed. They don't want to see them rocked in any way. And calling God she is like a big linguistic shift. Also, we are in a time when there's a lot of anxieties regarding pronouns in general. So just the small matter of a pronoun shift, which in itself shouldn't be so controversial, there are all these kind of wider arguments and conversations going around that kind of are influencing um, the pushback to this. Has writing about it changed your ideas about God's gender and, and how it is talked about in Islam? 
a few months ago, before I even started working on this story, I was stuck in traffic at a traffic light with my daughter. My four-year-old daughter was in the back. This is that right after picking her up from school. She really had to go use the restroom. And she's saying, no, mom, hurry up, hurry up. Uh, I really need to go. I really need to go. And so exasperated, I said, okay, pray to Allah that he turns the traffic light green really quickly. And so she like whispers something under her breath and says, okay, I, I did my prayer. I pray that she changes the traffic light to green. And so instinctively I said, he, you know, like I kind of barked it. <laughs> and it was so interesting because I caught myself and I thought, no, it's so good. My, my daughter is, you know, like praying to God to turn yeah, something as minute as turning a traffic light green. But, you know, she's connecting and she kind of envisions God with this she or female form. She's four years old. There's no harm in this. Why am I being that kind of upholder of the patriarchy and correcting her to he? And it really made me rethink how I um, teach religion to my children and how I kind of um, carry over these values that were kind of instilled in all of us in, in previous generations of Muslims. At the same time, I feel like my perspective has been broadened, knowing that there are scholars who argue the permissibility of using the feminine pronoun, knowing that, you know, everything's not black and white. Changing the pronoun that you refer to your creator by, it really doesn't change your belief system. It doesn't change your religiosity in any sense. It's just helping you connect with your creator um, in, a, in a deeper way. And I think, I think that's really profound. Hafsa Lodi's piece for The Revealer is called The Muslim Women Using Feminine Pronouns for Allah. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Hone your business skills at the school ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Build your success story at babson.edu success. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin met with top Indian officials today in New Delhi to reinforce defensive ties between the two countries. As Sushmita Patak tells us, India is a crucial partner for the U.S. in countering China's growing influence. Secretary Austin called the U.S.-India partnership a cornerstone of a free and open Indo-Pacific. He met with India's Defense Minister Rajnath Singh to set a new roadmap for defense cooperation that will fast-track technology sharing and co-production. India is a major arms importer and Russia has long been its main source. But that's been changing in recent years, especially since the war in Ukraine, and the U.S. has emerged as one of India's key defense partners. That relationship is expected to deepen later this month during Prime Minister Narendra Modi's state visit to Washington. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Gurgaon, India. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu will not enter the race for president, as Josh Rogers of New Hampshire Public Radio tells us. The Republican governor says he plans to use his post in the early voting state to steer the GOP away from former President Donald Trump. Speaking on CNN, Chris Sununu said his six-month dalliance with a presidential run is over. But Sununu says he'll work to make sure his party does not renominate Trump. We have to be a party in a country that goes forward. And if we're only talking about Donald Trump, then we're only talking about relitigating elections or January 6th. We're only talking about yesterday. Sununu's serving his fourth term as New Hampshire governor. He's a fiscal conservative, but more moderate on some social issues than other Republicans who declared for 2024. Sununu did back Trump in past elections and has said he'll vote for him again if he's the Republican nominee. For NPR News, I'm Josh Rogers in Concord. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street today. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Social media platforms are contributing to a mental health crisis among American children, according to U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy. He spoke in Boston today on young people and mental health. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports. Morthy said there isn't enough data to determine whether social media is safe for children's developing brains, but he said social media platforms, just like other consumer products, should have safety standards. To tell a parent and a kid, just rely on your willpower to somehow manage your use of that platform, that is not realistic, it's not reasonable, and it's not a path toward good health. Morthy said the growing threats of climate change and gun violence are also factors in kids' worsening mental health. He spoke alongside Senator Ed Markey at the BU School of Public Health. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Thayal McCluskey. The Department of Public Health's rapid response team is at the Veterans Home in Chelsea to help the staff care for patients during a new COVID outbreak. Veterans Services Secretary John Santiago says 15 residents and nine staff members have tested positive since the first case was reported last Wednesday. 31 people died at the Chelsea Veterans Home during the first years of the pandemic. And a statewide air quality alert will be in effect all day tomorrow in Massachusetts. The alert is due to smoke from Canadian wildfires that continues to blow over the region. The air quality is expected to be unhealthful for sensitive populations, including older adults and people with heart problems or lung diseases, such as asthma. Red Sox are playing the Tampa Bay Rays over at Fenway Park. Now at the top of the sixth, it is 3-0 Tampa Bay. In the forecast, overnight tonight, spotty showers, temperatures in the low 50s. And for tomorrow, partly sunny skies, some smoke, as we said, coming from the fires burning in Nova Scotia. Should be warm tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. 61 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. From the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The relative calm of Senegal in West Africa has been shattered this past week by protests and clashes with police. More than a dozen people have died and hundreds have been arrested. In the capital, Dakar, the government has deployed the army and suspended cell phone data and access to some social media. AFP's West Africa correspondent Portia Crow joins us from Dakar. Welcome. Thank you. These protests began after a popular opposition politician and potential presidential candidate was convicted and sentenced on Thursday. Why did that inspire people to take to the streets? That's right. So as you mentioned, it has to do with the popular opposition politician, Usman Sanko, who was convicted in absentia in a Dakar court on Thursday. Uh, it seems the conviction will make him ineligible to contest the presidential election in February. And Sanko himself and his supporters claim that it's all been sort of a ploy to keep him out of politics. 
So that's sort of what set things off. Um, but the other reason that tensions have been running high is that Senegalese people have been waiting for months to find out whether the president, Macky Sall, will stand for a third term in next year's election. His opponents say that that would be unconstitutional. Um, so that's definitely another reason people have been rallying in support of Sanko, but also kind of against President Sal and the possibility of a third mandate. Senegal and the capital Dakar are known for stability in a region where many countries have a history of instability. So what have the streets of the capital been like these last few days? So things were quite tense on Thursday and Friday. Uh, nine people died, uh, and that death toll has since risen. The university campus in Dakar was ransacked. Entire buildings were burnt down. Security forces were firing tear gas, and protesters were throwing stones. And at least 500 people have been arrested. But today is calmer. Uh, people have ventured out to the grocery stores and seem to be stocking up on provisions. Um, this morning, there were long lines outside of banks with people trying to withdraw cash. So much of this revolves around what the president, Macky Sall, will do and whether he'll run for a third term. Has he spoken since these clashes started, the protests on Thursday? No, if you can believe it, this has been going on since Thursday. We're now Monday. More than a dozen people have died so far. And neither President Sall nor Usman Sanko has spoken publicly. Other cabinet ministers have spoken. And Sanko, we presume, is still in his home in Dakar, where he's been blocked in by a heavy security force presence. And being under what he calls illegal house arrest hasn't stopped him from making video addresses or statements on social media in the past. But he hasn't made any kind of public statement since the verdict on Thursday or the ensuing violence either, um, although his party has condemned what it described as repression and police brutality. And meanwhile, how are people getting by in the capital without widespread Internet access or cell phone data? The Internet has been increasingly restricted, so and it continues to be. So the government first blocked access just to social networks, including WhatsApp, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. That was on Thursday evening, uh, and so those were only accessible with certain VPNs. Then many VPNs started to be blocked, and then yesterday, Sunday afternoon, the government sort of further restricted access by suspending all mobile data. So then even like basic web searches and emails were only possible when connected to Wi-Fi. That was temporarily lifted this morning, but it seems to be back again. So, you know, and that, and that is having a financial impact as well, because a lot of financial transactions are made using mobile money, uh, which relies on the Internet. You said calm seems to be returning to the streets. Does it look like this is ending? Right now, calm has more or less returned, uh, and that's important for people's safety and people's livelihoods. It's clear this is going to have a significant impact on the economy. But as for whether the calm will persist, the big question kind of on everyone's minds is what's going to happen to Sanko himself. He's not been arrested, despite being convicted and surrounded in his home by security forces. And I think the big thing many people are worried about is what will happen if he is arrested. Uh, and if that happens, I think we'll maybe look back on this moment as sort of the calm between storms. That's Portia Crow, correspondent with AFP in Dakar, Senegal. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you. Firefighting departments nationwide have tried to diversify their ranks for years. They have made only modest progress. Today, the profession remains overwhelmingly white and male. From member station KQED, Farida Javala Romero reports on one program in California that's trying to change that. I first met Lupe Duran in 2017, just weeks after his home was destroyed by a massive wildfire in Northern California. The 23-year-old welding student was overwhelmed with loss, sleeping on relatives' couches. 
But the disaster made Duran realize he didn't want to feel powerless against any fire. Well, it was a feeling of wanting to do more, wanting to actually help and give back to the community. Today, he's well on his way to becoming a firefighter paramedic. He's enrolled in a unique program preparing people of color and women for careers in the fire service. It's called Fire Foundry, a nonprofit collaboration between Marin County and area universities. All team, you ready? At a rope rescue training in a redwood forest, a female recruit rappels off a ravine near a creek. Once at the bottom, she puts a harness on a colleague pretending to be in need of rescue. And from the top of the cliff, Duran and the rest of the team pull on a rope until the two are back on the trail. Okay. On a break, Duran says he's excited to learn these skills from professional firefighters. But he says their mentorship and connections are key, too. The captains you meet, the battalion chiefs you meet, it's, you can't really get that exposure just walking in off the street. You know, if, unless you know somebody that is in the fire department, which really makes a difference. This one-year program is different in that it pays for everything, from prerequisite classes and books to career guidance and even housing at fire stations. Recruits also work clearing brush and trees that fuel wildfires. And that income was a game-changer for Duran, who was struggling to switch careers while working as a landscaper full-time. So we're working right now. We're actually getting paid to do this training through our program, which is an awesome difference. The experience, you know, is, I can't put a value on the experience that we're learning right now. Nationwide, more than 90% of firefighters are men, and about 85% are white, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. In California, big city departments such as Los Angeles and San Francisco are more diverse, following discrimination lawsuits and settlements that took years. But Marin County's fire department today is still more than 80% white. Marin County Fire Captain Rick Wannaberger says expanding diversity will help them be more effective as firefighters. My engine, you know, currently all, they're, we're all English speakers. You know, uh, some of us can speak a little bit of Spanish, but how much better would it be if I truly was fluent? How much that person would feel truly at ease? As for Duran, he's getting closer to his goal. He's completing an emergency medical technician course. He's set to get a fire technology degree. And he just got a seasonal job with the county inspecting homes for wildfire defense. Oh, it's very exciting. I mean, it's all I've wanted for the past six years. <laughs> so it's, you know, took some time, but it's paying off now. The Fire Foundry program is just over a year old, but long-term funding is in question. Duran says he worries other people coming up behind him won't get the chance he got. For NPR News, I'm Farida Javala Romero in Marin County. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Tiziana Deering. Local journalism has disappeared from communities across America. Research from Harvard shows the erosion of local journalism has contributed to the deterioration of civic engagement in affected communities. Boston is fortunate to have robust local journalism, but we can't take it for granted. Start a monthly contribution to WBUR to keep our local journalism strong. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
And just think of how we all benefit when journalism is strong, when you have outlets such as WBUR that bring you editorial independence, that bring you stories that you know you can count on because they are accountable stories, they're reliable, brought to you by fantastic reporters that we have on staff here at WBUR, and that is what you count on whenever you listen, whenever you go to WBUR.org. This is day one of our fund drive. It's a short fundraiser. We're hoping that right now you will help us meet our goal because we're looking for 700 listeners who have not become monthly contributors to do so right now. And there's an especially good reason right now because we have um, a dollar-for-dollar match on the table just until 7 o'clock tonight. I'm Lisa Mullins with Robin Young. Good morning or afternoon. <laughs> Where are we? Who are you? 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And it is for all the reasons that Lisa just said. We are trying to get uh, more of you, frankly, to become monthly contributors because it's really the best way to go. It truly is. Uh, it's a consistent stream of your support for this station. But we're trying to get you to do it right now because it's a dollar-for-dollar dollar match for everything that you pledge, which means this isn't just something that will be matched for June. It's for the entire year from now. So it's for all those reasons. And it's also because, you know, we live in a time where it's just, it's really crazy. Some of the things that people believe, the fake news that's out there, the the AP, Lisa, has a terrific rundown they do every week. Things that did not happen this week, you know, where oh. they talk about, you know, there were no secret uh, inspections of voter uh, equipment in Maricopa County, uh, Arizona, which is what somebody claimed. Uh, Target is not selling satanic children's clothing. I know you'll be glad to hear that. Apparently a picture went out and it's it was some sort of AI thing that purported to show a girl wearing a pentagram shirt. And it's because Target is being attacked because of its LGBTQ plus merchandise for Pride Month. That's why somebody set up Target and sent out that false story. You laugh maybe at some of these, you know, the things that people believe are being told by other news outlets. But, you know, some of these things have led to violence and they've definitely led to sort of a corrosion of the country, I would say. You know, if we all don't, you know, have a baseline of truth, then there's a problem. But you know you have it here. It's our solemn pledge to you. I mean, we just, I don't, I don't know how people tell, tell, you know, tell you that Target is selling satanic children's clothing, but we just, we, we just don't do that. You can count on the news and information that you get from WBUR and NPR, and we're asking you to, to do more than just respect it and count on it. We're asking you to support it. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Have you ever wondered how you would feel if tomorrow you woke up and public radio was just gone? Oh, man, that would be tough. I, I think it would be devastating. Well, I would grieve because there would be no replacement for it. We asked listeners around the country that very question. I've been listening to NPR for a long time. So NPR has been a giant part of my life. And I would be devastated if it wasn't there anymore. It would be a very depressing ride to work. I don't know if there's enough cups of coffee in the world that would be able to get me over that. There, there really is nothing else like it. We donate, but there's a lot of people out there that listen that probably don't donate. And I think uh, that's a really great thing to put into perspective is how would you feel? There's an easy way to feel good about public radio and the financial health of your station. Just support it. Really, do it right now. Call or go online. Your tax-deductible contribution will help ensure public radio isn't going anywhere. It'll be here when you turn on your radio tomorrow. And thanks. 
Thank you so much for everybody who's made the phone call right now or gone online. Again, it's WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. It's a good question to ask yourself. Uh, How would you feel if NPR weren't here, if WBUR weren't here? What would you miss about the station? What are the stories that you would miss? What are the stories that bring you joy, um, that make you understand the world better? And where would you turn if you couldn't turn to WBUR? Well, we are not going away, but the truth is that stations across the country have been cutting back. You know that uh, the dollars that we get for um, uh, certain programs uh, for online and uh, podcasts are shrinking, and that is happening across the country as well. And we hope that you will help us make it up because you are making up, as listeners, the vast majority of our operating budget. So we do count on you. Tell us what you would give to get WBUR back if it weren't here right now. Would you give $15 a month? If so, this is the time to make a pledge. $15 a month, and best of all, you get it matched dollar for dollar. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. I tell you something you won't miss. This is asking you to help support the station, but we can do it in the short, sweet way that we do because you've come forward and other listeners have come forward over and over over the years, and we can't say enough how much we depend on it. We make it short in the hope that you will go right to the phone or the website, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Time now for My Unsung Hero our series from the team at Hidden Brain, sharing the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Andy Davis. A few years ago, Davis and his wife decided to ride their bikes across the country. They spent months training for their adventure. But one day in 2020, just a few months before they planned to leave, Davis felt an intense pain across his chest. I was sent by helicopter twice to different hospitals, I was stabilized, and I emerged from that in uh, heart failure. And it was incredible because I, I was so fit, and just a couple months later, I could barely shuffle around my, my own home. By November, I was placed on the heart transplant list, and uh, you don't know if you're going to get hard if you're placed on the list. You just hope. And uh, my condition deteriorated really quickly. And so a balloon was placed in my aorta, which I'd never had that done before. But uh, that lasted for 11 days. And on the 12th day, December 12th, I learned that my new heart was on its way and went into surgery hoping that I would see people and my family on the other side. I was never able to meet my unsung hero. Her name was Sarah Ivy. And I know from speaking with her husband that she was a mother and a wife. And at this point, she is now literally a part of me. I've been living with my new heart now for over a year. 
believe it or not, my wife and I are now dreaming about taking that cross-country bicycle trip again. I'm shocked and I marvel at the fact that I'm still alive and I'm still with my family. And I think about Sarah and her family who during those incredible times of grief made the difficult choice to grant others life through organ donation. I truly believe that the heartbeat of humanity, empathy, care, and compassion are alive and well because of countless unsung heroes like Sarah Ivey. Andy Davis lives in Indiana, Pennsylvania. He's planning to meet Sarah Ivey's family for the first time in August. He hopes to ride the 200 miles there on his bike. You can find more stories on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown, season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive nature.org slash solutions. This is NPR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Perkins School for the Blind, global leader in education for children with disabilities. Help more of them access education at perkins.org slash changing lives. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local journalism is the backbone of vibrant, engaged local communities. When local journalism disappears, civic engagement goes with it. WBUR's journalism is strong, but we don't take it for granted, and we hope you won't either. Our future is not guaranteed. We need your monthly contribution to keep our journalism and our local communities strong. Give today at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And here's a better way to um, to make us strong, to keep us strong, uh, better than usual, because right now we have a match on the table only for a little over another hour. It's a dollar-for-dollar match, so please take advantage of it. On this, the first day of our fund drive, we really would like to uh, make our goal of 700 new listeners becoming monthly contributors to WBUR. What better time than right now? 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Make a pledge right now a monthly pledge, and it will be matched dollar for dollar by some very nice and very generous members of the Murrah Society. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. We want to make this short and snappy. I mean, this is just going to be a few days, right, Lisa? I think we're just going through a few days this week, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Because somebody told me to show up here on Sunday, and then... (laughs) I don't think anything's happening. <laughs> anyway, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org, short and snappy, because we know that you will respond. I mean, yes, we're asking for 700 viewers who haven't, viewers, listeners, who haven't yet contributed at, on a monthly basis. Can't take the TV basis. out of the girl. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, you know, those of you who haven't yet uh, become monthly contributors, yes, we're, we're definitely, I mean, we're trying to reach out to you to convince you to do that. And, and part of the way we're doing that is, is letting you know that your contribution 
will be doubled every single month for the next year. Uh, and we're trying to get you to do that because it really is a better way to do it. It's more efficient. It takes it right out of whatever information you give us, and it does it every single month, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. You know, it's just done for you, 1-800-909-9287. It also helps us plan because we have a sense of who's committed to us over the next several months. So for all of those reasons, please try to make that call now, 1-800-909-9287, or go online, wbur.org. I think we've only got this match that will be dollar for dollar for about another hour. Until 7 o'clock tonight. Okay. Right. And then it disappears. And by the way, again, Oof. thanks to the members, uh, generous members of the Morris Society have put up their money in order to match yours. This is Laura Dern. If there is a world on the other side of a wall somewhere where artists run free and journalists share a point of view to educate us into alternative opinion and voice, and it's used beautifully, and there's opera and Sesame Street and National Public Radio, I want to be on that side of the wall. So thank you, National Public Radio. I pray that you're supported forever. We need you. It's how I get my news. It's how I get to know about human behavior. It's how I, thanks to people like Terry Gross, learn about film and invention, and I care deeply about it, and I never, ever want anyone to feel anxiety about losing voice in our uh, beautiful democracy. And so well said by Laura Dern. And by the way, this is the only place in Boston where you can hear fresh air. This is the kind of thing that we hope you appreciate is that just the, the, the breadth of what you get from WBUR. Of course, what you hear on the air with uh, Here and Now and Morning Edition and On Point and All Things Considered and Radio Boston, but also what you get online and on air, Hidden Brain by Shankar Vedantam, who is uh, behind My Unsung Hero and just heard the latest version of that. You get Endless Thread, our podcast. You get The Common every day. This is what you are paying for with your contribution. And it is certainly, we think, worth, if you can do $10 a month, $15 a month, and get it matched right now. So $10 becomes $20 for an entire year. $20 a month becomes $40 for an entire year. 1-800-909-9287. Or pledge online, if you prefer, at WBUR.org. It's amazing, actually, how much there is coming out of this radio station. And you can see a lot of that just documented right in front of you at WBUR.org when you make your pledge. I mean, you know, Cognoscenti, this ability for people to weigh in with their own essays. It's beautiful. And very often they go on the air and it's the talk of the, you know, the public radio nationwide. It creates you know? a tremendous buzz. Oh, Cognoscenti it's just, does. yeah, it does. And it's, it's just a way for, you know, you have a voice. You are a stakeholder. You are a part of this station. It's not just something that you're passively listening to. You are actively a part of it. And part of how you do that is this phone call and this going to the website, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. 
From Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House says two close encounters with China in recent weeks, one at sea and one in the air, is a sign of the Chinese military's growing aggressiveness. NPR's Asma Khalid reports the comments follow an incident in the Taiwan Strait over the weekend, in which a Chinese warship appeared to cut off a U.S. naval vessel. This all comes after months of tension between Beijing and Washington. John Kirby, a national security spokesman with the White House, calls these recent intercepts unacceptable. It won't be long before somebody gets hurt. Uh, that's, the, that's the concern with these unsafe and unprofessional intercepts. Uh, they can lead to misunderstandings. They can lead to miscalculations. Two Biden administration officials are in Beijing today. The State Department says the two sides had candid and productive discussions as part of ongoing efforts to maintain open lines of communication between the United States and China. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. One of the country's most famous convicted spies has been found dead in a Colorado prison. Robert Hansen was 79 years old. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports prison officials say he was found unresponsive in his cell early this morning. Staff members at the Supermax facility in Florence, Colorado, attempted life-saving measures to no avail. Robert Hansen had been serving a life sentence on espionage and conspiracy charges. He started working as an FBI agent in the mid-1970s, but he also secretly worked for Soviet and Russian intelligence for more than two decades. Prosecutors say he collected $1.4 million in cash and diamonds. In exchange, he exposed the identities of U.S. assets and other major secrets. Hansen pleaded guilty in 2001 and was sentenced to multiple life terms in prison a year later. Kerry Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The Securities and Exchange Commission has filed more than a dozen charges against the crypto company Binance and the firm's CEO. As NPR's David Gurr reports, they're accused of misleading investors and regulators. Binance runs the largest crypto exchange in the world, and it's accused by the SEC of commingling billions of dollars worth of customers' assets and failing to register with regulators. The company has seen its market share grow dramatically since FTX collapsed late last year. But it's also faced more scrutiny. U.S. customers are restricted from using Binance's main exchange for regulatory reasons. But in its suit, the SEC says the company and its chief executive, quote, subverted their own controls to secretly allow high-value U.S. customers to trade on it. Another U.S. regulator, the CFTC, filed similar charges in March. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Federal investigators are continuing to try to gather all the debris from a small plane crash in a remote area of Virginia. National Transportation Safety Board officials say the small plane carrying four people flew over Washington, D.C. Sunday before crashing in Virginia, two miles north of Montebello. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu hopes to get more Bostonians employed in the life sciences. Today was the opening of the Bio International Conference. The mayor announced a $4 million initiative to train residents for biotech jobs. 
Mayor Wu aims to get 1,000 more residents employed in the field by the end of 2025. And a report from the advocacy group Transit Matters finds the state's commuter rail system needs a full overhaul or Massachusetts will fall short of achieving its net zero carbon goals by 2050. The report recommends the state consider switching from aging diesel trains to electric trains. That switchover could cost upwards of $8 billion. Red Sox are finally on the board over at Fenway Park as they wrap up their series with Tampa Bay. The score is now 4-1 to one Rays in the bottom of the seventh inning. And in the forecast, drizzle off and on through the evening hours. Should have overcast skies tonight, about 53 for a low. Tomorrow, mild again, suddenly up around 75 degrees tomorrow. Gusty winds pushing, pushing uh, patchy smoke from Nova Scotia down to our area, especially tomorrow afternoon. Could have partly sunny skies, but the chance of showers too. And then for Wednesday, mainly cloudy, up around 68 degrees. This is WBUR, 59 degrees now at 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. At WBUR and NPR, we bring you the kind of journalism that makes a difference in the world. Journalism with real impact requires a significant investment from our reporters and editors and our listeners. Our contributing listeners provide the largest share of WBUR's funding. So when you hear a story that makes a difference to you, make a contribution to us. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. You can add three more names this week to the roster of Republicans who are running for president. who will get the latest in just a couple of minutes on WBUR. First, that phone number that Magna Chakrabarty mentioned, 1-800-909-9287, and the website WBUR.org. Two important bits of information for you to support this station that so needs your support, especially right now on the first day of our June Fund Drive, a short fundraiser, and especially right now because we have 55 minutes left left uh, in that matching grant, the dollar-for-dollar match by some really generous members of the Morrow Society. They put up their money specifically in order to match your money. So there is right now money on the table. We don't want to leave it there. Don't leave it there. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. You can make a pledge at either one, but at WBUR.org, I'm, I love this. You can look. There's so many different things to do. I'm taking the news quiz. Okay, how would you do on the news quiz, Lisa? Here's uh-huh. one of the questions. Uh-oh. The state Senate passed its budget proposal recently. It includes some policy disagreements with the House spending plan. Are they about free community college? College, online lottery, free school meals, or all of the above? All of the above. You are so correct. Miss, 1-800-9... Oh, you better be. (laughs) 1-800-909-9287. You can take the the Week in the News quiz. You can read the essays on Cognoscente. You can see the top stories of the week. You can make a pledge. So do that now because, as uh, Lisa's been saying, your chance is going to run out. It's it's really an opportunity for you to take advantage of some other listeners from the Murrow Society who are willing to double your pledge, essentially, dollar for dollar. They're going to match your pledge. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Hi, I'm environmental correspondent Barbara Moran. I've been working with my colleague, senior health reporter Gabriela Emanuel, to investigate the science and health impacts of the toxic forever chemicals called PFAS. I talked to a lot of people about how these chemicals contaminate our drinking water, including Bill Watcher, who lives in Stowe. 
Bill tested his well, just to be safe, and found a pretty high level of PFAS. He told me it was scary. I mean, you, you've lived here for 37 years, and you've brought up two children here, and so you don't know what the long-term health implications are for all those years of drinking maybe tainted water. PFAS is scary, and the science is super complicated and kind of controversial. So we wanted to be really careful with these stories, so we reported them for months, working really hard to get them right. That meant listening to hours of legislative hearings, reading a lot of scientific papers, and interviewing dozens and dozens of people. So it was especially rewarding when we heard from listeners that these stories really hit home. So one man wrote, you told the story simply and clearly without alarmism, but driving home both the challenge and the urgency. Your work is important and makes a difference in the world. That's why WBR exists, to tell the stories that make a difference in the world. When you listen to our environmental coverage, you get clear reporting that helps you understand the scary stuff and maybe makes it a little less scary. And that's why we're asking you for your pledge right now. Think of the stories that have maybe changed your understanding of an issue, made an impact in some way, changed your life possibly. Um, there are stories that we've done that have changed the direction of activity on Beacon Hill. These are the kinds of things that you get when you listen to WBUR and the care that it takes reporters like Barbara Moran mm. to prepare the series. There are many other reporters involved as well, the series on PFAS. And she mentioned that the amount of time it takes to verify information, to go through uh, legislative roles, to, to find out individual stories. Um, this is this yeah. is what you're paying for. So we know it's worth it. And we're hoping that right now you will understand how much we rely on your contribution. We're looking for 700 listeners who have never given a monthly contribution before to please give it right now and have it matched. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Boy, what a what a, uh, an addition Barbara Moran has been to WBUR. Her reporting is terrific. Plus, she got us to just read do the entire cafeteria here. Everything. We're mm. composting. There's no plastics. I mean, everything is dishes and no... We're just being so conscious because she is so conscious of the environment. And this is what she does and brings to you as well. How about saying thank you? 1-800-909-9287. Don't make her come to your kitchen. <laughs> I'm telling you. WBUR.org. And thank you. 50 minutes left to go in the match. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com slash WBUR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We are learning more about the lead-up to and the aftermath of the deadliest train accident in India in more than two decades. We'll hear directly from survivors. Also, what India's leaders are saying about the crash in just a moment. First, it's a big week in the Republican presidential primary. Three more candidates are expected to jump into the race, and the candidates already running are on the campaign trail, often focusing on the culture wars. 
NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro is following the field. Hi, Domenico. Hey, Ari. Okay, let's start with former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who had a town hall on CNN yesterday. How'd she do? You know, certainly more cogent than the town hall that uh, former President Trump did on the network. And that's reflective of their personalities. It's a contrast Haley really wants to draw. You know, she had a clearer position on Ukraine than Trump had. And, you know, she's comfortable on foreign policy, which makes sense. She was Trump's UN ambassador. On domestic topics, though, was a bit rockier. You know, she was vague on abortion policy, was lacking some real context when talking about transgender youth. For example, she had this to say about girls' sports, transgender participation, and mental health. How are we supposed to get our girls used to the fact that biological boys are in their locker rooms? And then we wonder why a third of our teenage girls seriously contemplated suicide last year? You know, that's a real stretch. I mean, a combination of complex factors can place young people at high risk for suicide and depression, including substance use disorder, poor academic performance, other severe consequences. You know, Haley really misses a key point here. The CDC found in 2021 that a third of teenage girls had contemplated suicide the year before, but that same report said the risk was far higher among female LGBTQ plus students. Hmm. The culture wars have been central to this campaign, especially when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former President Donald Trump are out giving their campaign speeches. Both have overshadowed Haley up to this point. How do they differ in their messaging on the culture wars? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, DeSantis has made taking on progressive culture what he calls woke, a hallmark of his time as governor of Florida. Trump says that he's not a fan of using the phrase woke because he doesn't think people really understand what it means. That triggered this response from DeSantis, who spoke with a reporter from NBC on the sidelines of a campaign event in a gymnasium. It's about putting merit and achievement behind identity politics, and it's basically a war on the truth. And as that has infected institutions, it has corrupted a lot of institutions. So you've got to be willing to fight the woke. We've done it in Florida, and we proudly uh, consider ourselves the state where woke goes to die. So you can hear him say that being woke essentially makes someone's identity more important than whether they're good at something in the eyes of liberals. Uh, and, you know, he calls it a war on truth. DeSantis has taken on corporations like Disney when it comes to gender identity issues, really press schools to steer clear of teaching about gender or racial discrimination. And we're expecting other candidates to enter the race this week and learned about one who won't. Give us a snapshot. Yeah, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu says he's not going to run, which opens up a key early primary state in New Hampshire. Sununu says beating Trump is what's most important and nominating him could mean risking alienating voters by pushing unpopular policies. But, you know, if DeSantis is the alternative, it's not like he's somehow more liberal. He's running to be more right wing. Tomorrow, we're expecting former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie to get into the race. And then on Wednesday, it's going to be former Vice President Mike Pence who makes it official. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Desperate families are looking for their loved ones in the Indian state of Odisha. Many people are still missing after a horrific train accident killed more than 270 and injured more than 1,100 people on Friday. There's a crunch at the morgues, scores of bodies still unclaimed. Authorities say a signal fault was the likely cause of the accident. With Sandeep Sahu in Odisha, Shalu Yadev sent this report. An incoming call from a loved one trying to reach out to one of the victims. But it remains unanswered as the victim's body lay lifeless. Many bodies are still unclaimed and unaccounted for at the school in Odisha's Balasore city, which was turned into a morgue because of its proximity to the accident site. 
The dead bodies were first brought here on Friday and kept for identification by families. The hall in this school has blood all over the floor and walls, and a stench has started to overpower the surroundings as bodies start to decay in the heat. Outside the school, a woman broke down as she heard that her son's body might be here. My son did not get to see much of the world. My child, he was trying so hard to find a job, she says. The disaster that killed her son on Friday was the worst train accident India has seen in nearly two decades. It shattered the dreams of hundreds of families across the country. With a faint chance of finding survivors anymore after the authorities declared completion of their rescue work, some families are now turning to mortuaries. Mukul Singh is looking for his 22-year-old nephew and neighbour. I have been looking for them since Friday night, but I haven't had any luck. I am going everywhere and anywhere people are pointing me to go. I couldn't find them even at the hospitals. I am now looking through the dead bodies to see if they are here. While the morgues are teeming with desperate family members looking for the remains of their loved ones, the hospitals are overwhelmed with hundreds of injured. Debiki Patra is still in shock as she recounts the moment when the tragedy struck. I boarded the train along with my husband and two sons at around 6.30 p.m. The train was packed with people. 15, 20 minutes later, we felt a huge thud and we were thrown off the carriage. My elder son pulled my husband and my younger son out of the wreckage. I broke my arm and they are now being treated in a different hospital. A preliminary investigation indicates that the accident was the result of a signal failure. Prime Minister Narendra Modi was visibly disturbed when he visited the hospital on Saturday. This is an extremely serious incident. The government is taking this very seriously. The culprit will not be spared. But even as he promised justice for the victims, serious questions are being raised about the safety standards of India's railways. A lifeline for the world's most populous country, ferrying about 25 million passengers every day. Yet with frequent accidents like this, it seems India's lifeline now needs a lifeline. With Sandeep Sahu in Odisha, for NPR News, I'm Shalu Yadav in Delhi. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust, committed to conserving and promoting New England's native plants to ensure healthy, biologically diverse landscapes. More at nativeplanttrust.org. And Red Fire Farm, organic summer farm shares with veggies, fruit, cheese, and more. Delivery or pickup in Cambridge, Somerville, Newton, and other towns. Redfirefarm.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's been a down day on Wall Street. The Dow fell six-tenths of a percent. S&P lost two-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq dipped uh, just about a tenth of a percent. Details coming up on Marketplace starting at 6.30. Apple just introduced its first major new product in a decade. It's a virtual reality headset. The story and the prospects tomorrow on WBUR 90.9. Start your day right here. 
in the forecast overnight tonight. Cloudy skies, spotty showers, temperatures in low 50s. And for tomorrow, partly sunny skies dimmed by some of the smoke coming in from the fires burning in Nova Scotia. Should be windy tomorrow and warmer up around the mid-70s. 59 degrees now in Boston at 620. You know that phrase, strength in numbers? That's how WBUR really works. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's journalism thrives through the collective contributions of tens of thousands of listeners each year. Join us during this brief but important fundraiser. Help us meet our June fundraiser goal by making a monthly contribution now. Here's how you can contribute. Here's how it's really easy. Call this number, one 800 909 9287 or go online and do it at wbur.org because we have 40 minutes left before our matching grant will be over. That means you can get your contribution for a monthly pledge match dollar for dollar thanks to some wonderful members of the Murrow Society who put up their money in order to match your contribution. So you know what that means. You just have to make the contribution and we mm-hmm. hope you will right now. Our, our CEO, Margaret Lowe, joined Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy for a little talk about WBUR's role in your life and your role in ours. And Margaret talked about the impact of some of our recent work. Let's listen. We just won an award for a show we produced about a little-known epidemic, survivors of domestic violence who are living with traumatic brain injury. We talk all the time about this issue with football players, right? But almost never about the estimated tens of millions of women who are walking around with brain injuries from abusive partners. And many of them actually have no idea what's causing things like lapses in memory, difficulty concentrating problems with balance or vision or fatigue until they finally, if they finally do, get diagnosed. So the show I'm talking about profiled a woman named Freya Doe, and we actually used a pseudonym to protect her safety. In any case, she shared her story of the abuse she suffered from the beginning of her first marriage when she was just 18 years old. And then, many years later, she finally understood what had caused her issues. Let's listen. And having an answer to what was going on with me was such a relief. And it also allowed me to realize that What happened to me was not a shameful thing. The shame did not belong on me. The shame belonged on him. We heard from so many listeners after the show. One woman who wrote explained how she too was in an abusive marriage and went on to say this. Yet even with professional help, traumatic brain injury was never a consideration in my diagnoses and treatments. This show helped me to finally end the ongoing questions of self-doubt and blame that have haunted me for 65 years. Truth, this listener wrote, is always better late than never. Please accept my profound thanks for shining the light on this invisible epidemic. Getting a note like that, realizing that our reporting this story helped one person make sense of her whole life, it's pretty extraordinary. Absolutely. And you know, the late great journalist and writer Joan Didion said, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And that's why BUR is here, to help make sense of the world, to help us understand life experiences beyond our own. Stories do that. I mean, they tether us together and remind us of what we have in common and really of our own humanity. 
When you think about um, that story that uh, Margaret Lowe, our CEO, just told, think about a story that has meant something to you, um, that has meant something maybe on a personal level, that has helped your understanding of an issue, that has challenged the way you think about something, and put a dollar value on it. During this fundraiser, this is the time when we ask you, we invite you and implore you, I guess in some ways, implore you to tell us uh, through your pledge what WBUR means to you and put a dollar value on it. So would it be a dollar a day? Is WBUR worth a dollar a day to you? Then make a pledge of $30 a month. And when you do that right now, $30 a month, it will be doubled to become $60 a month because of uh, the dollar for dollar match on the table right now. So you do the math. Um, because we know that we mean something to you. You wouldn't spend your time listening to us if that weren't the case. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. That was powerful to hear that. You know, and the truth is we're free. We're free. You know, we're free, especially for people walking around dealing with other things like brain injuries they haven't been able to explain. You know, we're free. But... We're not. I mean, if you can afford to help support us, then really, for reporting like that, for people who can't, how about making that call, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thanks. WBUR supporters include Good News Garage, over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing, goodnewsgarage.org. You've heard the advice to put on sunscreen. Ads assure you that this brand or that one is the best. Well, it seems that picking the right sunscreen is less important than using enough. That's one of several tips we hear from NPR's Allison Aubrey. When I rummaged through last season's pool bag and found a few bottles of half-used sunscreen, I figured I'd lather some on. I mean, at $10 a bottle, why not? But Ida Orango, a dermatologist at Baylor College of Medicine, persuaded me to toss it out. I always tell people that you need to look at the expiration date and get rid of them. And even if they haven't expired, my kind of mantra is every spring I buy all new sunscreen for my household. The active ingredients can degrade, and she says bacteria can get into the creams too. So once I tossed out the old ones, I was in the market for new sunscreens. I'd always bought the standard chemical sunscreen sprays in the past, though recent studies found some of these chemicals can get into the bloodstream. Dr. Tola Oyasanya, a dermatologist with Kaiser Permanente in the Baltimore area, told me she recommends an alternative, physical sunscreens made from titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. They're also called mineral sunscreens, and some newer versions go on without that thick, white, pasty look. I think that zinc oxide and titanium dioxide are much, much safer than chemical sunscreens. Um, Because they're so inert, they're less likely to enter the bloodstream. And they're better for sensitive skin, since they're less likely to irritate, she says. As for choosing the SPF, lots of sunscreens come in SPF 50 or even 80, but it turns out the sunscreens with the highest sun protection factor aren't necessarily better. SPF 30 is sufficient, and that's because SPF 30 is going to filter 97% of the UV rays that are coming through from the sun. And as we go up in SPF, SPF 50, SPF 75, SPF 100, you're really getting a minuscule increase. She tells her patients to focus less on the SPF and more on the amount of sunscreen they use. And Dr. Arengo agrees. One mistake many people make is using too little. 
The recommended amount is about an ounce and a half of liquid sunscreen. We always say it's like a shot glass full of sunscreen is for the whole body. And about a teaspoon for the face. When it comes to spray sunscreens, Dr. Oyesanya says it's a little trickier to gauge the amount. I think that spray sunscreens are a bit risky. Because of the spray, it's easy to miss a whole area of your body, especially if you're applying it outside. The wind may carry the sunscreen away. She says make sure all the parts of your body that need to be covered feel wet after you spray. And remember, you need to reapply about every two hours. Dr. Jennifer Holman, who is a fellow of the American Academy of Dermatology, says sunscreens don't last very long, especially when people sweat and swim. If you're exposed to the water, even with sunscreens labeled as water resistant, you're really only getting about 80 to 90 minutes of protection. So reapply often, even on cloudy days. Dermatologists say some of the worst sunburns are linked to overcast days when people may assume they don't need sunscreen. You're still getting about 80% of the UV rays filtered through those clouds on a cloudy day, so you absolutely can still you know, experience damage from UV radiation on a cloudy day. So keep your sunscreen handy, even when it's not sunny. But Dr. Oyesanya says one mistake people make is to leave sunscreen stored in the trunk or glove box of their car where it gets too hot. The sunscreen is actually being degraded by heat. And so the components of the sunscreen that are supposed to protect you are getting broken down slowly over time. One thing you can keep in your car is clothing or hats to protect you from the sun. Baseball caps protect part of your face. But dermatologists say what's better is a three-inch brim hat made with tightly woven material. Dr. Jennifer Holman says fair-skinned people are at higher risk of burns and melanoma, but people with dark skin are vulnerable to damage from the sun, too. I mean, I've cut skin cancers off of every skin type that I can think of because that risk is still there. That's why sunscreen is recommended for people of all ages and skin types. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Gore Place and the Jane Austen Garden Party. Enjoy food, games, and costumes in a setting fit for the author's famous novels, July 9th in Waltham. goreplace.org.